you want to get to the podcast, but listen up. We are still making podcasts in the time of COVID, and we know our podcasts are like two hours long now, but what else are you going to do? But we're getting access <laughs> We're holding to... you hostage, <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. We have access... Give in to the Corona cast. There's access to so many people we would normally not have access to, so we want to bring you those conversations, and we want you to share them so that when this is over, we'll have more subscribers. So please do... You know what you're supposed to do. You have to smash that subscribe button. You have to share it. You have, When you see it on Facebook, I know we're not on Twitter that much, but when you see it on Twitter, share that. But if you see it on Facebook, share our post. Spread the word. Spread it like a virus. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show that's normally live, but just a podcast for now about opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you via video conferencing technology with co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, full house tonight. All right. On this episode, Chalk Talk, we wrap up the Opera Bracket Final Four. Only a single team, a single show can have its one shining moment. Find out who that is. But first, Oliver goes inside the huddle with Russell Thomas, one of the most sought-after tenors of his generation who specializes in the hardest-to-cast roles like Polione in Norma, Floristan in Fidelio in the title role, of Verdi's Othello. Tenor recently joined the faculty of the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University. And two-minute drill, bad news from more of America's summer opera festivals, worse news from the National Association of Teachers of Singing. Maybe this is not the worst news ever. Talk a little sports before we get into it. Major League Baseball apparently slated to restart on Independence Day weekend. And how genius is that? Let's face it, baseball is no longer America's sport. That is pro football. MLB, it needs love. It needs to get back in the spotlight. And it's not a high-contact sport. It is closer to tennis and to golf in terms of being non-contact than something like football, basketball, or hockey. It's kind of genius that the MLB is slating a July 4th. There's going to be millions of pairs of eyeballs on those screens, millions of pairs of ears listening to those radios should Major League Baseball be the first pro sport to come back. Of course, we'll be rooting for the Cubbies here on the north side. Not a huge baseball fan myself, but I'm desperate. Really, really desperate for sports. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Tenor Russell Thomas is a name you've heard on this podcast many times. As one of the few black singers to be cast as Verdi's Othello, we read his essay on identity activism and blackface in opera just over a year ago when he was performing the benchmark dramatic tenor roles for Canadian Opera Company. We started our conversation 
with Russell Thomas, asking him how he thinks virtual performances of opera translate over the internet. But first, here's that iconic entrance of Otello from the 2019 production at the COC. Um, I mean, I think it would be great to get back out there and, and for people to sing um, uh, and stream. But this, that part of it at home, and, and a lot of times uh, singers are asked to do this for free. Mm-hmm. I think that is the part that I have a problem with. Uh, you know, we are losing, none of us have any income. I know I have, I've lost quite a bit of income. Luckily, the companies that canceled on me gave me a little bit of money or a portion of my fee. Uh, or promised to give a portion of my fee, rather. I haven't seen any money yet. But I think it's important that singers are not asked to do what they normally would do for a living for free. We're not asking doctors to treat us for free. We're not asking the grocery store to give us free food. Uh, So we're in a position where we need to earn money. So I think that streaming is a way to go to open back up. But we shouldn't be asked to do this for no money. And a lot of t- a lot of singers and a lot of companies, from what I understand, are considering asking singers to to be there and sing for peanuts and stream and try to get money from audiences online without paying them uh, anywhere close to a normal fee. Yeah, raise money for the Mets so that our administrators can uh, still earn money. <laughs> and, and I don't, and I won't just say it's the Met. I mean, I, I think the Met is in a precarious situation because they have they lost a, a, they're the biggest company in the country they lost a significant amount of ticket revenue um but i think they're every everybody's like well forget let's forget the rest of the spring season and let's just think of the fall and so that's what's kind of what they're doing and if they open back up in the fall and do what they're supposed to do or even if they don't open back up like all these artists that did suffer free are they going to compensate them uh for the things that they get, right. they get canceled in the fall that's the question. You know, if yesterday, I, I don't know how much money they possibly raised, but if yesterday they raised a few hundred grand, are they going to then say, you know, okay, we need to cancel the first three or four operas. We can take some of that money and give it to some artists. Are they going to do that? You know, uh, I think that's the question. Um, and I think you have to be careful as artists not to just feel like we have to do it or we won't be asked back or be used uh, by companies, but we also have to do what we can to help the, the art form and the the structure of our business um, survive. I mean, we have there's a there's a balance there, and I don't know what that balance is, but I think we have to be on the companies on one side and artists on the other have to be very conscious of that. There's also a balance for us who, you know, are talking about these things and who are ultimately fans, if not practitioners ourselves that we want to watch these things. We want to see our favorite artists. We want to see what their houses look like, you know? And, you know, and we want to share like the joy of that, the fun of that with all of our, our community. But then I know that it's just like, you know, I'm not passing the purity test because I did not, you know, refuse to, to watch that because people aren't getting paid, you know? Right. But it's, it's not even that. I mean, just, just, it's like I said, it's about, 
it's, it's a huge balance, you know, from an audience point of view, you know, how many people can afford right now because none of us are working to donate and how many can afford to, you know, buy a ticket online to see, you know, a streamed version of the Barbara Seville from five different people's houses, you know, yeah. are, are, are we able to, are people able to actually afford to buy tickets right now? You know, and the people that would, would, you know, save, you know, a few paychecks, you know, a little bit and a few paychecks to go see their favorite show. Um, now they probably don't have a few paychecks to stay and see a show. So again, it's, it's a hard balance. You know, it's a, it's a difficult situation. I'm glad I'm not the one that has to make that choice, but it is a, it is a difficult situation. And being, uh, you know, there's the real target audience and, you know, the ones who are like in their 60s and who are, you know, more in the philanthropy part of their lives, you know, do they even know how to log on to the Met website? And do they have the patience to sit in front of their computer screens, you know, and do they have their grandson set up their computer so they could put it on their TV and they could watch like a real thing, you know, and can they suffer that sound quality, you know? Right. There, there are a lot of questions there. And I think for, for a place like the Met, if they decided to have people come in and put on shows with no audience and the orchestra, maybe put the chorus, you know, in, in the audience uh, so that people aren't all bunched up together, mm. uh, what, what would that, they would be in a better position than, say, Michigan Opera Theater, who doesn't have that infrastructure, you know? Uh, the Met, San Francisco, Chicago, a few of these larger companies, they have that infrastructure because they already stream parts of their things, uh, their, their seasons or certain productions. So um, I think they would be okay. But the little guy, you know, the the Florida Grand Opera, probably not so much, you know, or the, um, you know, Boston Lyric Opera, probably not so much because they don't already have that infrastructure in place. They would have to spend quite a bit of money to try to figure out how to make that work. Um, so I think that's some, also something that people will think about and companies will think about uh, moving forward, especially in the fall, because I'm not confident that we're going to have a fall season. I was looking forward to singing Kanye. I'm looking forward, still looking forward to singing Kanye in Chicago. But I don't think we're going to have a fall season. Personally, I just don't. Hmm. Because as you said, our target audience, <clears throat> average age is probably over 60. So, you know, those people are not, are they going to feel safe to go buy a ticket and yeah. sit 3,000 people at the, you know, opera house? Yeah. You know, that's something to think about. Well, about a year ago, uh, you wrote this, I guess, article or letter uh, that was published by a Canadian opera company called uh, Too Bad You're Black. Um, and maybe I'm wrong in thinking that this is actually, you know, your platform. Like this is like your, what you really want to be people to be thinking about when they think about you. Uh, but you did write it. So um, are, are we OK talking about identity? Uh, you know, and how you feel as a black person in opera? Absolutely. I'm okay to talk about it. I think um, the article, I was asked to write something because I was uh, uh, rehearsing, I think, Otello at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the it. whole blackface conversation was around. And and uh, I they wanted me to talk about blackface. And I was like, yeah, that's boring. Uh, and it's not really a thing. We're making it a thing, but it's not really a thing, you know? Uh, and so... Um, I told them, I said, well, you know, I'll write, you know, a blog. It's a, it was a blog entry. Mm -hmm. I'll write a blog entry about, you know, my own experience and the, like the worst possibly like blatant racist thing that I ever experienced uh, uh, in this business. And that was that. That was that story. But you did go on to talk about um, 
you know, maybe blackface, where, like you're saying, it's not such a black and white thing. <laughs> it's not such a, it's not so clear that blackface itself is happening in opera, like darkening of the skin for Aida, for, for Otello. And if we start, you know, only asking Asian artists to sing Butterfly and black people to sing um, Aida and Otello, then are we limiting ourselves to not be able to sing roles that are traditionally cast as white people, you know? Absolutely. And that is the point. That is the point. That is the point that I make when I say that blackface in, in opera is really not a thing. You know, you put makeup on characters to tell a story. You know, um, if they had everybody looking, you know, crazy, like, you know, what's the guy's name? Jolson or whatever with the blackface. Yeah. In the Jolson, red- yeah. Yes, that's a, that's blackface. You know, um, that's not what they're doing in opera. They're, you know, Anna in the Trap Corps getting a spray tan before her Aida. You know, I have no problem with that. Yeah. You know, I have no, she and and it's not like her spray tan is um, uh, anything unlike the Kardashians. You know, it's not it's not like it's anything unlike we would see on the street from somebody who gets a spray tan. You know, it's not like it's much different. So I think um, uh, we have to just be careful not to start limiting limiting people to saying you can only sing race-specific, so typecasting pretty much, race-specific roles, because how many roles are written for Black people and how many roles are written for Asians? You know, then there's all this other repertoire that we will never get a chance to sing if we start thinking of it in that way. Also, letting the stars sing soprano of our times put put darkness on our face or on our body to sing Aida allows an audience to see darkness on stage, and I think that's very important. Um, because as much as we want to think we live in a post-racial world, that's BS. Um, we don't live in a post-racial world. People need to be comfortable seeing darkness on stage. And if that's through Anna Nechepko, uh, that's fine. I accept that. Um, yes, I would like to see Asian art, more Asian artists on stage and more Latino artists on stage and more Black artists on stage. Um, but I think we have to, you know, again, it's all about balance. And I don't, if we start saying that only this person can do this and only that person can do that, we're limiting everybody. We're limiting everybody. Yeah. Well, will we not get a Tammy, will we not get a Tammy Wilson Aida, you know, because she's not black, you know, I just, I think that's, that's something that we have to think about. Well, well, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the quotes that stuck out to me in that article, when you mentioned, you know, okay, so if we do start pigeonholing, if we start doing this, and if we start saying that, you know, people of these backgrounds can only sing these parts. The thing that stuck with me is in a world like that, minority artists will always lose. And that was the thing that really drove it home for me was like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course that is exactly. And unfortunately what would happen. That was another thing that was so pivotal for me about, about you telling your experience about the two badger black thing is that I'm sure for a number of people reading it, that was a really shocking thing to, to read about. But if you are familiar with virtually any minority singer. Everybody, almost all of them have had one of those experiences. And like you said before, you're just the one that's calling it out. It's not like this was a new experience. It's not like this is something that was unique to you and you coming up through these ranks. This happened to, I would, I would put money on the majority of minority singers that are coming through and you're just the one that's, that's talking about it. It happens to all of them. I've spoken to my Asian colleagues and they've all, they all have an experience the same way. And I think, yeah. You know, Latino artists don't really 
don't really get it as bad because of their proximity to white. You know, I know someone's going to blast me for this, but let's call a thing a thing. Um, they don't experience that as much. And plus, in the business, they've had ch- very visible champions in the business. Asian artists have not. Black artists have not. We have not had those kind of very visible champions. Even though we've had some very visible stars, black singers have had some very, black artists have had some very vis- visible black stars. We have not had <clears throat> we have not had um, those champions for like you know going out and hire this hire black people hire this hire or in an administrative point of view we haven't had a black administrator saying hey we need more black people in 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 uh, on our stages actually I find that when we have had black administrators they've done the absolute opposite because they didn't want to seem like they were only hiring black people right I know exactly so, what you mean <laughs> so. You're going to now be teaching at Indiana University, arguably one of the, you know, foremost training grounds for uh, young singers in America. How do you think you might be able to, you know, influence your colleagues, your peers, but also the students as a, in terms of, you know, implicit bias and racial equality? Or I, I'm sure... I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for, for what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyways. I think that these problems that we have of bias start at the university conservative conservative uh, conservatory levels. Agree. Um, uh, these are the places where you know young minority singers usually get the short end of the stick. They don't get cast very often. They don't get the best scholarships. Uh, they they tend to um, be treated. Um, not as good or not as given, they're not given as much favor as their white counterparts. Um, And I think one of the things that I'm going to be probably getting into a lot of trouble about is I'm going to be calling that out. Um, I, I, I love Indiana university. I'm not, I was never a student. I had no interaction there other than when I was a very young singer going and having a lesson with the great Camilla Williams. Um, uh, And she was a hoot and she was already at a very advanced age when I met her. Uh, but she was one of, I think she probably was the first black uh, uh, professor of voice at the school. Um, and uh, uh, she was great. She treated me well and she she taught me a lot um, in that week that I spent with her in Bloomington. Um, but I think it's important that my colleagues um, know how their words or how their effects or how their lack of casting and how their lack of scholarship, what that does mentally to a minority student, you know, that, that what that does to their confidence. So out the gate, they're already not going to be as confident uh, as say the next singer, you know? And again, I've, I've heard a lot of singers there now. um, And I think the school has to do something big to become the IU of maybe a decade ago, you know, or, or maybe 15 years ago. Um, because it has changed. It has changed a lot. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they wanted to hire a working singer right now uh, to get to bring sort of that um, prestige. Yeah, back to the school. Because at one point, there were every, almost every teacher there was, was either a star, former star, or currently working in the business. You know, uh, now that's sort of not the case because, of course, everyone gets tenure and they stay until they, you know, are too old to, to, to teach anymore. And then, you know, so you have so many teachers that are probably like this close to retirement. Um, uh, you know, they're all great and they've all had their great careers and they've all taught 
amazing CDs and produced some great singers. But this generation of singers that are coming now have no clue who those people are. And although I'm not a biggest star as, say, you know, you know, uh, who's teaching there? I mean, uh, uh, the, the, can't think of his name right now. Famous baritone. Um, but he... Uh, Richard but Stilwell? Uh, was Is that Richard Stilwell? No, he's not there. I, I want to say Wolfgang Brendel or something like okay. that. You know, one of those very big names that were big when I was a kid, when I was coming up, uh, who I know who he is, but uh, the young singers that are coming up today have no clue who he is. They probably have no clue. Some of them may have no clue who Carol Van Ness is. So she's not going to be as big a draw uh, for recruitment as, say, you know, me, or who I've not even... I'm no star by, by my estimation, but younger, the younger generation of singers knows who I am and they probably will want to come to IU for that reason. But I think we have to just be careful. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going on a tangent here. <laughs> we, can, we just have to make sure that I would like to make sure that my, my, my um, colleagues know and understand that there is this bias. And even if there, it's not intentional, we have to call it out, recognize it and do something to fix it. I want to take this opportunity to pivot a little bit because I know Matt had a question about uh, maybe your teaching philosophy as it relates to how you were trained and uh, mentored into focusing on Mozart. Matt, do you want to flush out that question because I'm not getting it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, re I'm really curious uh, about how that kind of age-old chestnut that young singers should sing Mozart, which I know is something that you encountered in your career, um, how that plays into your philosophy of teaching and and uh, what you have to say about that, both in terms of like how you learned to sing as a tenor and uh, how you're how you see it applying to the instruction of of new voice students. Well, I'll put it to you like this. I don't think young singers should sing Mozart. I think that everybody should be able to sing Mozart. And that, that does that mean when you're 19, you should be singing Tamino? Absolutely not. Maybe you, I don't think I didn't learn how to sing a good Tamino until I was almost 30. But I had already sung Tamino quite a few times before that. But I didn't. I wasn't good at it until I was about 30. Um, and uh, I had already sung at that time Don Ottavio. I had already sung um, uh, quite a few Mozart tenor roles. Um, what I think Mozart does, and what it did for me, it made me a consciously. It made me a better singer. But you have to already know how to do things first. And, and that's the part that I think a lot of teachers and coaches and people miss. They say, oh, well, you start with Mozart. But Mozart can screw up your throat just as quick as singing Wagner too soon. You know, if you're not training that singer how to teach sing properly, um, they can sing Mozart poorly and hurt themselves even more, I think, because it's so exposed. And it sits in, it sits in the area of everybody's voice where it's hard. So for tenors, it sits right in the passaggio. For, you know, sopranos, it's sort of everything up at the top and everything way down at the bottom, you know? So it, it sits in a part of people's voices that if you have difficulty in those areas could cause you vocal stress. Um, whereas Puccini just sort of sings itself, you know? It's not going to make you sing better, but it's, not, it's almost not going to hurt you because it's sort of built in a way that it meant to, to, made every, to make everybody sound good, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I'm really curious about in hearing also about your transition from someone who was working and singing a lot of Mozart to how, how that 
has informed your your singing in different styles since you have such a versatile resume and and list of repertoire? For me, it it was very helpful. But I was already singing. Um, I mean, I, technically, I, I wouldn't say I was. I had a great technique when I came to the Met program. When when sort of all that changed. Um, for me, the 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 quality of my singing got better as I sang more Mozart and as I learned how to, as I put the technique that I was learning onto the Mozart, the Mozart got better and singing the Mozart made everything else sort of fall in line. Um, and for me, as, as in, in terms of singing philosophy, I sort of sing everything from that point of view of being clean, uh, not sort of swooping and sliding all over the place. If you hear me sing, it's never going to be sort of a scooping and swooping kind of thing. I do hook high notes here and there, especially if I need to, or if I feel like it will make a dramatic effect, <laughs> I will definitely hook a high note. Um, but for the most part, it's a, it's a very clean singing, sometimes too clean. I mean, I get that a lot from conductors, especially the Italian conductors. It's like, I've never heard anybody sing every single note so cleanly. I don't think people want to hear that. You know, they want to hear, you know, they just want the drama. They just want the style. They want the swooping phrases. But I don't think they really want to hear, you know, that you can sing every single note and that you can sing a trill here because no one really cares about that trill. <laughs> you know, don't stress. Your, don't, 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 don't stress yourself about singing a trill because I don't, I'm not sure we really want to, we really care if you can sing it or not. But for me, it's important. I, I look at a score. And I can show you one of my scores. I mark every single detail in the score. Like every time there's a trill, every time there's a diminuendo, every single detail, I mark it uh, as a visual cue to try to do something there, you know? Um, and that's for me, it's very important. Um, but um, it's not always the, it's not always welcomed. <laughs> but, yeah. I, I, but, but, I th but to your point, I think Mozart is what, and my singing Mozart and my focusing on Mozart uh, for a f quite a few years, sort of made that my thing. You know, it sort of made me have to focus on singing cleanly, singing everything that's in the score, um, trying to make dynamic changes uh, where the words make sense, uh, where because Mozart doesn't always mark them. Uh, so you have to make them where they make sense or follow the orchestra accompaniment. And yeah, so I think it can be beneficial, but we shouldn't force it down everybody's throat. You know, and and I think that that's the thing. Everybody should be able to sing Mozart, but not young singers should sing Mozart. I don't think that's necessarily the case. So I know we're not going to have another Otello from you until 2022, but did this approach to the way you work on your music uh, sort of um, uh, inform your interpretation of Otello? And, you know, Otello is just such this big, nasty sing, and we're just happy when people get through it, but did it make you, did it make you think of, of approaching it a different way? And did you have to negotiate with conductors? Like, actually, if you look at the score, I, I don't need to be, you know, triple forte in this moment. If you, you know, yes. I, again, if I, if I could find my Otello score, I can show you that every single time there's a piano or a P in that score anywhere, it was highlighted. And every, and, and those, so many of the parts that are marked piano traditionally are played loud. And I don't know why that is. And I fought with every single one of them. I'll tell you, in the duet with Desdemona in the first, the end of the first act, there's this line, Pingea dell'armi fremito, la cugna, It's written in the score, four Ps. I challenge you to find in any recording in the last hundred years <laughs> where, you will, where you will hear 
that's sung with or or played by the orchestra with four piece, so the tenor can actually feel confident enough to sing it piano because he's already also written that way, and it's lower in his voice at that point. Um, but already they're playing loud every single time because it's exciting. It's like this rumble. It's this rumble of his insecurity that's happening in the orchestra that Verdi wrote. But it's supposed to be an undercurrent, not like, you know, a hurricane. And it's always played more like the hurricane than this undercurrent of stress, you know? And, and so yeah, there was a lot of uh, negotiating <laughs> with conductors. Uh, uh, yeah, a lot. And a lot. Until I got with the last one in, in Washington, at Washington National Opera Caligari, I think it was, um, he understood it better because he had more experience with it. And we had more rehearsal time than I had in, in places with another experienced conductor, but we only had like four days of rehearsal. Um, mm. But the problem is, by the time I got to Washington, I had already done 11, uh, sung 11, 12 performances of Otello by that point in the year. So I'd already had too many performances under my belt. I was tired. Um, I was physically stressed. I mean, and I was singing before that I sang Forza del Destino and it was like, my voice sounded fresh. I felt fresh. I felt like I can do anything. And then a week after that, after Forza closed in Berlin, a week later, I started rehearsals in Washington and it singing, going back to Otello immediately, I felt tired. I sang way too many performances in a year. And um, even though I sang them within my means and with, with my voice, um, I think it was way too many. Uh, so um, those performances, in my opinion, were not as successful as the ones, say, in Toronto, where I, where I wasn't as experienced with the role, uh, but I was fresher, a fresher voice, you know? Can you just describe for us, because like some of us will never understand the pressure um, like it's like singing Norma or something like that. Like what it's really like to have that writing on your shoulders, like such an iconic role that we all know in the audience is a throat buster and compound that with the fact that you're black and that people are saying, well, this is like the real interpretation, you know? <laughs> you know you're absolutely right. And I, and I, and I tell everybody, you know, I tell, I've told everybody that will listen and ask, I'm not an Otello voice. There is, there is a difference, you know. I'm not an Otello voice. I'm a tenor with a with big-ish voice that can sing Otello. There's a big difference. If you're looking for a barking, screaming, Delmonico-type Otello, I'm never going to be that. And I think for a lot of people, and for me, the pressure was, I know I'm not that singer. And I told everybody that my interpretation will not be Delmonico. It will be if Bergonzi had sang Otello young, that's what it would, I'm going towards that. That's probably what it would have sounded like. It would have been stylistically amazing. It would have had colors. It would have been clean. And that's sort of how I think that my approach to that part was. And it was stressful because people were like, we don't care. We just want to hear him, you know, balls to the wall the whole time. Right. Uh, but I know that I can't do that vocally. And I, in, in there are parts that you sort of have to. End of act two, you have to. And again, I tried uh, to do that. I tried to do that where, where I sort of had to do it. But that was always a part in the show that caused the most angst. Because everybody wants to hear at the end of Ora Per Sempre, this big B uh, natural, some screamed and loud. But no, most tenors, if you listen to any recording from, especially Plaza de Domingo, he sings that and he's sort of squeezing it out for dear life. 
you know, and, and the only, there are very few people who did that successfully. And I, my relaxation in that was, I'm going to do this the best I can at that moment, but I know that no one has done it perfectly. <laughs> no one has done it perfectly. So that was, that's sort of my thing. And except for maybe in the time when people didn't sing as full-throated, you know, maybe in, you know, in the twenties, there were probably more singers that sort of were able to do that because they weren't singing the entire piece in full chest voice, you know, but that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> that's a whole other discussion about historical singing that would, people just, they just don't get today. Um, I am so ready for that discussion, but uh, we only have a couple minutes left and I know that, Oh wow. uh, yeah, I know it goes by so fast. Um, last week, so we're dropping this podcast in the middle of May and uh, last week we had an episode where we um, gave the perspective of um, women who became mothers while they were in the middle of their careers as singers or administrators. Uh, so I'm going to pass over to Ashley, uh, who is more prepared to flesh out this question for you. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So you know, whether, whether meaning to or not, we are seeing you end up being a kind of an advocate for, for social justice in the classical music community. So as a father, how, how does fatherhood inform the choices that you're currently making in your career and whether meaning to or not in advocacy? Um, that's difficult because, you know, to be honest, I, I feel, uh, as my family knows, I feel very bad about being gone all the time. Um, <clears throat> and I do have several colleagues, female colleagues, who, who had children and their careers suffered for it. You know, I'm lucky being a man that that's not sort of my thing. And I also have a great support right. system, my mom, who, you know, goes and picks him up from school every day and, you know, takes him to school every day and does the sort of day-to-day -day, uh, actions. Um, but, I mean, I think for me, the only thing is I want, again, I always said that I never wanted to be famous. I never wanted to be a star. I wanted to make a mark on the business. And so everybody sort of knew I was there. You know, they sort of knew I was there. And I think I'm doing that. Uh, and I would agree. And for me, the important thing is that my son, uh, as he gets older, has something to be proud of in knowing that I stood up for things that mattered at the time that they mattered, that I had a position of something that was probably on the right side, maybe before other people were ready to make those uh, those proclamations. Um, but I think that um, that's what's most important to me, that I make a good impression and a good mark so that if he decides one day to go into music or to do something because he loves music, uh, uh, to do something in music or to do something in, in, in whatever it is that he's a supporter of classical music and that he understands the mark that I sort of left behind in classical music. And that's, to me, the most important thing. So that informs my decisions. My decisions are informed by that. But again, I feel like a shitty parent because I'm always gone, you know, and, and there is FaceTime. Yeah. There's FaceTime. There's, you know, there's all these ways to be involved. But still, there's something about that physical um, connection that's missing uh, that thank God for, you know, the blessing of the coronavirus and COVID-19 is that I get to be home with my kid, you know? And that's something that, yeah. uh, although I miss being on stage and being at the forefront of things, I get to be at the forefront of being Papa and staying home and, and playing out in the backyard and that kind of thing and teaching him how to ride a bike and stuff with my mom. That's important. So those things are very important. Teaching him how to hook a high note. And listen, you should see him. You should you you should see him. <laughs> oh, you should see him. Try to do well, it. Well, and I was 
<laughs> I was going to ask because, you know, sometimes the, you know, the kids that have a parent that does something has some sort of exceptional talent. They, they get behind it and they get real excited. And some kids absolutely want to do a 180 and like want nothing to do with it. So you mentioned that he loves music. So like, what's he into? What does he, what does he really love right now? He, he loves sitting down at the piano where I am sitting now and playing. And, and funny thing is, is that we've been during this time, we've been doing like a music. My partner is also a musician. Uh, uh, but he sings gospel music and R&B. So he's been getting sort of this wide-ranging uh, <laughs> wide-ranging musical uh, education. So we've been doing ear training, and he can recognize at the piano, you know, what's a, a third and what's a fourth and what's a minor and what's a major. Uh, and he's five, you know. So th- these are the things that we're doing. And he also learned, knows how to, you know, sing with a microphone and sing some gospel, <laughs> you know, that he does with my partner. So he's sort of getting that... Uh, musical education. He has a little violin here, but he doesn't want to hold it too long. So uh, we've been trying, you know, the first step of kids learning how to play the violin is getting used to doing this. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that ear to shoulder move. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's sort of not, uh, he's sort of not into that as much. So, so he just wants to just do this, <laughs> but he doesn't really want to hold it. <laughs> well, um, you were talking about you were talking about historical Verdi uh, style. There's actually historical violin technique where you, you know, you put it right to your chest. You know, if you want to teach him how to play like a soprano viol and you go to the, you know, early music route, you know. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I was I, I was reading uh, and and I was communicating with a violin teacher that does one of these online things, uh, but they're actually a, an orchestra musician. Um, uh, and I wrote to her and asked her, and she was like, "Oh, just get him one of those, you know." Those things that, you know, prop up his chin a little bit. I forgot what it's called. Uh, and he'll be much easier with it. He'll, he'll enjoy it a bit more. She said too many people stick to this idea that they have to be able to do it without it, without the support. But she's like, no, just just get it. Get, get him the help to prop it up. And he'll be he'll be happier with it. And then he'll decide when he's ready to take that off. Kind of like taking the training wheels off a bike. You know, he'll decide when he's ready to take it off. So we'll see. So you are currently in... Uh, Atlanta right now is it? Yeah, I'm in Atlanta right now. So I don't. I mean, by the time this airs, I'm not sure what's going to happen with your state. But um, how was your quarantine? From, my quarantine is okay. You know, uh, uh, I'm okay with going outside. I don't really go to the store. I don't really I tattoo mean, I parlors. I'm sorry. Tattoo parlors. I hear that's open over there for you oh, guys. Okay. Tattoo parlors, beauty salons, and, <laughs> and what is it? Movie theaters and something else. Massage parlors. Yeah. And, um, but they won't open the state capitol. All the hands. They won't open the state capitol because it's just not safe. You know? <laughs> <laughs> all, there are all these people like writing and calling to uh, the, the governor's mansion saying, you know, we really want a tour of the governor's mansion. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 it's just not safe. But it's just, but the governor said it was safe. Why isn't the governor's mansion open for not open for a tour? Uh, unfortunately, we have a, a, a governor that is not a very bright man. <clears throat> um, he's not. He's not a very bright man. He's he's like you know Donald Trump of the, of Georgia. Uh, and again, I don't want to offend offend any listeners' uh, political sensitivities. But I mean, I'm a you know registered Republican, and I'm a bit more on the conservative side of things. But uh, we got to call stupid when we see stupid. And that's just stupid, you know. Uh, and um, I think that so many people are going to die uh, because of this. Um, unfortunately, for going outside and deciding to um, go get a haircut and deciding to go get a massage or a tattoo or something crazy going to the salon. I know, Listen, I want a haircut so bad. <laughs> 
but I'm not going outside. I'm, I'm not going into a salon, uh, to a barbershop to get a haircut. This is not going to happen. And I would implore anybody that's listening to this, um, wherever you are, don't do it. Not yet. Wait. Uh, you know, learn to cut your own hair. That's a good project. No one's going to see you. You know, learn, <laughs> learn, to, learn to cut your own hair. It will grow back, I promise. <laughs> but don't but don't go to a barbershop or salon. Please don't. Not right now. Um, but unfortunately, this is the world we're living in, um, where people don't trust science. They don't trust doctors. Uh, they trust politicians over uh, over other people. And I think that's um, that's a sad world, unfortunately. Well, what a way to end. Um, Russell Thomas, we have to have another discussion when you, maybe you're back in Chicago and we can talk more about uh, historical Verdi and whatnot and bel canto and stuff like that. It sounds like you really you really love this and you, you know the history. And I mean, that should go without saying, but I've done a lot of these interviews and it's not always clear that people actually listen to uh, other singers or understand the history that much, you know? <laughs> And, and I'll just say as a bit of an in cap, uh, singers, unfortunately, were we're taught all the time, especially at, when I was in school, it was like, oh, don't listen to recordings. You know, you don't want to listen to recordings. You're going to copy what they're doing. And and I'm sorry, I listened to any role that I've sung. I've listened to 20 recordings of that role. Oh. Any role I've sung. Uh, I wanted to hear, you know, the earliest possible recording of it. And I want to hear what people are doing today. I want to compare. And in my scores, I have the notes like this is from especially things that I like. This is from the salty recording from da 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 da. This is from this, and I and I make those choices so that when I go into a rehearsal period thing, and they're like, "Where did you get this from? Why are you doing this?" And I was like, "Well, if it was good enough for Shelty, yeah. it's good. Yeah. It's good enough for me." You know, it's sort of you know, it's sort of that's kind of my approach to singing and my approach to learning music and being a musician and and incorporating the style of it. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of singers have been told not to listen. You know, listening is bad. And I guess if you're listening to copy someone's technique or mimic someone's sound, that is bad. But to learn the style, to see what 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 people did, you know, in in the 20s versus what they did in the 50s and then they, what they did in the 80s and what they do now. That's that's not there's no problem with that. You know, there's no problem with that. To see a German conductor conduct Wagner versus an Italian conductor conduct Wagner. What is the you know, relationships and how are they doing things? Yeah. To me, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that, but I would love to. And hopefully I'm there in August uh, and we are able to have a show uh, in, in September and October uh, of Cav Pag in Chicago. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> and if so, we could definitely all get together and, and chit chat. And, yeah. and that would be awesome. awesome. That would be fun. That would um, be a lot of fun. Well, this last five minutes has been a great commercial for IU. So. What started in May 2019 as a slow-burning arts advocacy and independent journalism site, Zach Fickelstein's MiddleClassArtist.com has blown to a has blown up to a critical source of COVID crisis-related arts reporting. And as of March 2020, MiddleClassArtist.com has 100,000 hits. He's the voice of the people, he is. Oliver. Heard on Opera Box Score at the site's inception, tenor Zach Fickelstein used to write about business, the business side of singing, balancing budgets, taxes. Now he and a growing team of... The real glamour of the singing world. Yes. He and a growing team of contributors write about the classical musical world, classical music world, uh, how it's on fire. That was a great reading, Oliver. Um, so, Nailed it. Yeah, so we've been... Um, talking about middle-class artists for a few months now and uh, we just want you guys our listeners to check it out middleclassartist.com what, what I think is so important about the work that Zach does and kind of what it's turned into is that like 
the the business of singing has been something and when I say business, I mean like business with a capital B. The business of singing is something that isn't taught to you. It is kind of a survival of the fittest. If you're either smart enough and have enough context clues to just figure it out, you do it. Uh, if you don't, then there's a really good chance that you're not going to be successful in this industry because so much of this is about self-promotion, being self-made. Uh, and so the fact that he really digs in deep and, and makes it pretty transparent, like here's what's going on. This is how taxes are done. These are the things that you need to know. This is stuff that generations of singers should have had access to. We would have heard so many better voices if something like this was more transparent earlier on. Not just me being bitter about not knowing this at the beginning of my career, I promise. There are so many other things that need to be too. How do you build a durable, flexible, and successful classical arts career? What is happening in the classical music world right now? Who is paying their artists in the COVID era? Who is leaving them out in the cold, firing them by tweet? What is the classical music world going to look like when the COVID epidemic is over? And how do we get there? Go to middleclassartist.com. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. As we all know, sports are canceled, and so is opera. But Michigan Opera Theater has found a way to scratch both of those itches at once with a post on Instagram which asks the question, what is the greatest opera? The operas are broken down into a classic NCAA-style bracket, and you know the team here at Opera Box Score is ready to put these pieces through their paces to find out which opera will come out on top this year. And now, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. We're in the final four, and it's time for me, Ashley Hargrave, to judge the final contenders and crown a winner. Who will be the best opera of all time? <laughs> Shout out to Catherine DeYoung, young artist at MOT, for driving the creation of this genius bracket. Our final four operas are Don Giovanni, Candide, Carmen, and De Rosen Cavalier. And gentlemen, I believe this is now when we have uh, creative trash talking that is without swearing, so we don't get an explicit label. Who would like to begin? <laughs> Gosh darn you guys all the heck. <laughs> I mean, I really think it's time to face the fact that there's an odd man out in this final four, and it's DeRozan. Don Giovanni. Yes. <laughs> it's okay. so bad for Don Giovanni right now. We're really, <laughs> All right, so it's really going to be a barnstormer, I think. So the we have three matches tonight, and the first matchup is the winner of the Italian corner, Don Giovanni, and the winner of the English language corner, Candide? Inexplicably, <laughs> the winner. Very explicably, I'll have you know. So Judge, I'm confused. Candide, so, so we should recap how these operas got here. So Candide plowed through Benjamin Britten, Jake Heggie, uh, Gershwin. Did Gershwin, yes, yeah. to get here. So it was, somehow. It was all about the matchups, but this happens in the NCAAs. It had happens that you have a, a five or a six seed make it to, dare I say, the final game. And That's true. Candide is kind of like Gonzaga. You don't really remember them until about <laughs> February and March of every year. And then, oh, yeah, there they are. Nor do you know where it is. <laughs> it's in Gonzaga. It's I the thought capital it was Gorgonzola. So. <laughs> all right. So, um What's going to happen here? Who's going to throw the first punch? Or whatever we're, terminology, metaphor we're using. <laughs> you are certainly mixing your metaphors yeah, can, there. Candide, do you, wanna, do you want to begin the match? 
Well, I, well, I do. And, and this is why Candide, to me, deserves to go on another round, is that, you know, when we looked at the criteria for deciding these winners, a huge part of it was, is it an audience favorite? And I think it's difficult to find a composer and of that composer's work, an opera which is so fun to watch, like Candide, right? You've got great music, you've got fantastic wordplay, brilliant, charming, hilarious, moving characters. As a package, Candide, I think, goes the distance. And I want to illustrate that using my first clip from the opera, which is the best of all possible worlds. No odds and concentrations. Ammo, a mass, amact, a mammus. Ammo, a mass, amact, a mammus. Believing that this is the best of all possible worlds. With love and kisses, the best of all possible worlds. Cordera demonstrandum. Cordera demonstrandum. Cordera Marin Alsop there conducting the 2005 Lincoln Center live in concert revival. This is our radio show, of course, our podcast. Everybody on the panel was bobbing their head to that. Even Matt was rolling those beautiful eyes that he has. That is how catchy and great this music is. Catchy I'll give you, but I don't know if I would go all the way to great for the, of the whole show of Candide. There are definitely parts of Candide that are brilliant. But when you're talking about the wordplay, I think you have to keep in mind that it depends on which version of the libretto you're talking about. And there are about four or five uh, versus the libretto of Don Giovanni, which is really pretty consensus. There's pretty much a consensus that it's among the greatest artistic creations known to humankind. Uh, and when when I look at Candide versus Don Giovanni, what really stands out to me is that Candide is kind of like the funhouse mirror of Don Giovanni. It, it's taking these Enlightenment ideals and it's twisting them and it's satirizing them, and that's funny, and that's a great match for Bernstein with his bag of tricks. But I don't think that Candide is Leonard Bernstein's best work, and I do think that Don Giovanni could possibly be Mozart's best work. Uh, just the way that the the cohesion between the between the characters, music and libretto, uh, the there's the way that they are both they can be both funny and tragic at the same time, uh, and the fact that it is still relevant to today's society over 200 years after it was composed. I just don't think there's any comparison there, George. Uh, and what I, I want to play for you a part from the very very beginning of Don Giovanni with where how we're introduced to the characters of Don Giovanni, Leporello, and Donna Anna in those opening trio and you know exactly who all three of these people are from the very first time they open their mouths. <laughs> Don't be 
I can't believe that George brought that ensemble to this fight when he could have brought the overture, or he could have brought even Glitter and Be Gay. Or I got a soft spot in my heart for Make Our Garden Grow. I'm not going to well, we already heard, we already heard that, that in the, uh, round, <laughs> the round of 16 or whatever you call it. So It's good. All right, all right coming. So you're up at the half here. I'll, I'll give you that. But let, let's move on to the second half of the game. You know, we got... Um, 20 minutes of basketball left to play here. I think and that Ashley actually where... can make the call now. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think it's I think it's one of those. I think, I think you done got skunked, Cedarquist. <laughs> this would be the moment in the reality show where we turn to the judge. There's like that that uh, dramatic symbol sting, and then we cut to commercial. <laughs> yes, yes. My final choice is, and then pause, and it's an ad for like you know cleaning products. You know, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say is that you know. As great of a team as you can have, it really comes down to the coaching. The way that that team is led and the way that that team is coached uh, through through an exercise of a game is really what's going to make or break their performance. And while both of these coaches were good, I've got to say, I think... Oh, I think the Don Giovanni argument was just a little bit more compelling. A little bit more compelling. Oh, George is, he's ripping his hat off. He's storming out of the studio. He's slamming the door. Bobby Knight throwing a chair across the room. We're going to, we're going to put our towels over our heads and we're going to say, you know what? There's always next year. (laughs) Not actually not, there's maybe 2022. (laughs) Yeah, there there really might not be a next year. (laughs) 18 to 24 months for group sports. (laughs) All right. Our second matchup is the German French quarter. Half. <laughs> yes. And it's gonna be half. it's gonna be Carmen who brings a knife to the fight against a pretty boy who looks like a girl and wears white tights <laughs> and carries around flowers made out of silver. Yes, yeah, so what you're saying is you, you brought this knife to the to the gun fight. And you here. have your little rose. What about oh, yeah. that Persian rose water, Oliver? Tell me how you're prepared to counter that. I'm really trying to make sports metaphors happen with this, and it's just the more you talk, the more impossible it becomes. Weston, why don't why don't you uh, lead us off here? Why don't I go ahead and destroy you? Sure, I can do that. Um, so uh, this is a, a fun matchup. I think this is actually probably uh, the most interesting matchup we've had so far. I will give Carmen that it's a classic. Um, there's got some great little melodies here and there, 
But I think what we've got here is really a matchup defined by libretto. Uh, both operas do have phenomenal music, but I think that it's hard to compare the sort of like uh, a memorable melody, melodic construction of Carmen versus the dense sort of uh, shimmering harmonies and timbres of Rose and Cavalier. So um, ultimately, I think those sorts of things will come down to personal taste. But what isn't quite as much personal taste, I think, is um, the point we can compare, which is the characterization of both of these operas, especially of their main leads. Because I think that's what makes both of these operas special. Obviously, Carmen, you have a very strong uh, fig a figure who's very constant. She's very uh, relatable, but she also has uh, just a certain je ne sais quoi, to use the French term. Um, but I will say that when you look at uh, uh, Rosen Cavalier, there's a bunch of really good characters, but I would argue that the main character is the Marshallin, uh, uh, and where Carmen has a very strong, solid character, the Marshallin is, has layers, like an onion, like an ogre. She's got layers. Um, she, um, we first meet her having a fling with a much younger man, and she's generally sort of condescending towards him. He's, she's got her sort of upper-class attitudes. But you keep peeling things away, and you find out she's funny. She's fatalistic. She's clever. She's uh, caring. Uh, she's jealous. Um, and, some, and there are some moments in the opera where she becomes Marie-Thérèse, just a human, just standing there, like, naked, metaphorically speaking, um, sometimes literally if it's a German production. Um, and, and she's just pondering how time is leaving her behind. Uh, this moment that I'm going to play here is uh, uh, Regine Crespin singing from the Schulte recording, Die Zeit ist ein sonderbar Ding, which is really kind of a small moment in, in, in terms of the plot, but it's the most thematically resonant moment and sets up her entire arc uh, of accepting that she's hanging on to a fantasy in the form of Octavian, and that ties into the overall theme of the opera, which is the dawning European realization in that period which the opera was written, that the end of a phase of history was at hand. And while many good things could come from the future, not everything good, every good thing from the past would survive. And that's sort of the core of Rosen Cavalier. And that's just such a resonant message, particularly today, um, that I think we can uh, listen to and really appreciate the sad beauty of. Uh, so this is Die Zeit, Die ist ein sonderbar Ding.
it's such a deep human moment in what is ostensibly a comedy. And it's something that, frankly, Carmen just does not have. Who wants to go to the opera to see a sad woman talk about her gray hair and stopping clocks so she doesn't get old? Who can, <laughs> who can follow that libretto? When I go to the opera, when I'm a Luddite or a, a, heathen, a, a Philistine like me, I want melody. I want, I want a tune. I want some blood and guts. I want to know what's happening while I'm watching it. I don't want to think that hard. I like Carmen. I just want, like, I am waited for you to come back to me so we could get it on. I want to f- tonight. And so you want to go back? <laughs> you want to go back to the barracks because you want to be a good soldier? F- you. Agnes Balza from the studio recording made with Herbert von Karajan and the Berlin Philharmonic. Very similar. If you couldn't, if you couldn't tell that that was Agnes Balza from the fact that she was belting the entire role of Carmen. And and, with Balzas. Yeah. And and letting her voice shred. You know, she was not afraid. And she did the same thing um, in the Met broadcast, which is very easy to find on the YouTubes with uh, Jose Carreras and the person who shall not be named conducting uh, from the Peter Hall production. But she just brought all the spit, all the big hair, you know, all the body odor. You know, you could <laughs> just... I, that's, the spit is not something we want to hear about right now. I've always thought that she sounds like her voice might just burst into flames at any moment. <laughs> Like spontaneous combustion. I think we can all agree she's a treasure, but this is not to be judging a single singer. This is the opera, and I think the case is clearly won by by me. But unfortunately, it's up to Ashley. Well, you can't. The thing about Rosenkavalier is that you have to be an intellectual to enjoy it. Yes, (laughs) there. No, no. There are moments that are funny, and there are moments that are like universal. But the true joy of Rosenkavalier is spending time with the opera and, you know, studying it like you study a fine scotch, you know? And, like, does do you want to put in that time right now in in this day and age when there's so many forms of entertainment out there? You want the opera to just grab you by the balls and pull out the hairs. The the opening scene of Rose and Cavalier is literally someone getting grabbed by the balls, generally behind <laughs> the curtain. But uh, I digress. 
I feel like if this were an actual series of televised basketball games, uh, the Rose and Cavalier would be the uh, the human interest piece on the uh, on the kid that was plucked out of obscurity and overcame adversity, and you fall in love with him, and so you're secretly rooting for him in the matchup. And then when the game is actually televised, they're up against a huge team that has done nothing but run drills for nine months and just comes in and dunks on the precocious guy that you've been rooting for for the last 60 minutes. So, unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to give it to Carmen. Yes! Oh, robbed. And now for the thrill in Seville. <laughs> this, this will be but, interesting, right? Because, yeah, Carmen against Don Giovanni. I mean, these two title characters going head-to-head, that is something that really is deserving of a final. The bad boy and bad girl of opera, if you will. So there has been a theme that's been coursing through this entire bracket, and that's the theme of the Enlightenment and the theme of forgiveness and the theme of all humans are good. And maybe Don Giovanni is Mozart's most operatic opera, you know, where the the people are irredeemable, you know. And um, Carmen is so much more real. It's like, yes, we know that people are good, but do they really behave that way? And Carmen is just such much more of like a visceral, real person who uses sex, who uses her anger, who is scared, but is but does not back down from her fears. And it's so much more interesting character. And Don Jose is so real in that he loves his mom too much. And he's violent. And he's angry about something. And he, you know, is set up with Micaela, who is supposed to be the girl that he's supposed to be with, but he's not physically attracted to her, you know? Yeah, so we're talking about good characterizations. Name me a single character trait of Micaela other than that she's not Carmen. Boom. <laughs> Name me one. She's <laughs> pious. She believes in God. And I, we know people like both of those. Both of those are just not Carmen. None of that's in the source material. They added it all up to bi- to, bi- to build up this big duality between your virgin and your whore. I like life. Whereas Don Giovanni, his defining feature is that he's a chameleon. He sounds like whoever he's talking to. He sound you can hear the methods. You can and you can hear the way that Mozart uses the nuts and bolts of the opera to escalate the drama and to heighten the tension. Whereas Carmen it is detracted from by the parts that are tailored to convention. The opera comique, the quintet in act two, the is great, but anything that they do in act three with the except, not the card trio, but like that, that big opening scene where they're like camped around the fireplace. That's silly. That's just because it's opera comique. The customs trio that I mentioned is literally my least favorite part of the entire opera. You have a children's chorus versus Don Giovanni where Mozart takes this one moment of act, there's this one moment of act one that even though it's not like a showstopper moment, it really sticks with me because it shows how Mozart was such a musical genius and in a way that he was able to use that music to advance the plot in this part from the act one finale where you hear three different dance rhythms at the exact same time to show the chaos that's going on at at the uh, Bacchanal. Valle, povere, 
It's a moment that you might miss if you're not paying attention for it. But once you know that that's if you're looking at the score uh, and and just the experience of it, it confirms how just like great he is at weaving together all this all these different levels of character to build something bigger than any of the pieces. Well, it's funny that you should mention dance because dance is what the French operas do best. And we meet the character of Carmen through a dance rhythm. Uh, she has this beautiful seduction scene um, with Don Jose in a dance rhythm. And she opens up the second act with yet another dance rhythm. And I can only hold one dance in my head at a time. And I don't know if you expect audiences to be smart enough to hear all the references that Mozart was making there. Yes, if you study music history, you recognize the contra dance and you recognize the minuet and you hear how those dances are affiliated with class. But who knows those things right now uh, in 2020? But you definitely know what's happening in this scene. from the live production, uh, which I think is going to probably at some point be in the Met uh, nightly offerings, but that's the Peter Hall production from 1987, conducted by somebody who can't be named uh, with Jose Carreras as um, Don Jose and Agnes Balsa singing the Segedia. We have another so round. 
Right, Matt? We can go on one more round with me? We're at, we're at halftime. We're at halftime. Yeah. So here's the thing about Don Giovanni. Oh, wait, wait, wait a second. I'm sorry. Uh, Matt or Wesson, you've been silent. Any Anything you want to add to what, what has been said so far? Yeah, I definitely want to hear watching. a halftime commentary from these two. <laughs> I mean, my thought has been uh, uh, the the repeated theme we keep hearing from Oliver, and I, I admit my previous experience is coloring this somewhat, but he seems to be uh, uh, saying that Carmen is the best because it's sort of the Michael Bay of operas, just uh, lots of uh, lots of uh, big sort of emotional moments, and like like you know you can watch it and just sort of zone out, and at the end you've been to the opera. That's not what we go to. I for didn't an say opera, zone right? out. It's exciting. <laughs> it was implied. You eat your whole bag of popcorn while you're watching Carmen. <laughs> Just Whereas during through. Rosenkabler, you're too afraid to eat it. Oh, I would eat my popcorn during Rosenkabler, and I have. Hey, Rosenkabler gets pretty loud. We should, we should have we should have concessions in the opera house. Yeah, I mean this is neck and neck at the half. Uh, it, we're gonna as we go deeper into these operas, we're gonna see. I think who's really going to be able to go the distance on this. I'm going to get out of the way here and let Oliver and Matt uh, take it. All right, Matt, go ahead. So I want you to look at Don Giovanni and tell me that you don't see a team that can do both. You've got craftsmanship. You have got detail work. You've got that fine layered sense of history, but there is no shortage of balls to the wall, all out, capital M-O-N-E-N-T-S, moments in Don Giovanni. And if you thought that I was going to get through a round of Don Giovanni without playing this clip of the very end of the finale, where you've got whirling violins, you've got a chorus of damned souls, you've got two low voices slogging it out for who can go to the bottom, then I don't know what, what tournament you're playing in. So that was Sam Raimi as the 
Drake Punished, as the subtitle to Don Giovanni is, and uh, Court Mole as the Commendatore. And there are other recordings of Don Giovanni that really dig in more to the roughness of the kind of music. Uh, a lot of the other clips that I pulled from tonight are from the Renee Jacobs recording, just because um, so much of those sharp edges got got sanded down in the Mozart revival of like the early 20th century. And if you listen to like big box Mozart recordings from the 50s, basically until the 90s or so, everything is just very smooth and nice. But it's harsh and it's rough. And he, this is a trend-setting moment for opera. Everything that every other opera that has come in this competition drew from the drama that Mozart put into this part of Don Giovanni. And I just don't know if you have, how you can go against the OG. So I'll give it to the, you. That, oh, that, the original Giovanni is what that stands for. <laughs> I will say that that is an iconic moment in opera history. Uh, but it's not the only moment in opera history that, that brings that type of drama. Um, and I'll say that one of the great things about Carmen is that it's a, a role that people want to sing. Like, who's dying to sing Don Giovanni? Who's dying to sing Donatello? Oh, God, I wish. Carmen is a role that is so attractive to everybody who, who sings. Uh, even, I think, there are some countertenors out there who have done it, you know, or at least have done music from it, you know, because it's so exciting. And you want to talk about, like, rhetoric in music and how the new recordings of, or the new interpretations of Don Giovanni are trying to bring back some of that, you know, historical knowledge, that academic knowledge of what's really in the score. But Carmen worked even when we didn't have that rhetorical knowledge. And now we can look at an opera like Carmen, and you talked about this moment in the opera, the card trio, which is using the uh, sort of fate-like characteristic of the French overture as the rhythmic gesture of Carmen's lines. And she sings this lament. And then Frasquita and Mercedes come back with their opera comique duet. And we have the juxtaposition of tragedy and opera comique uh, in just 90 seconds. I am hoping that the referee will notice that Matt's last clip was two minutes long. I'm going to be able to do it in 90 seconds. Ooh. Well, just because how, how are you going to... How are you going to cut something that great short? I just wanted I just wanted to keep listening ride the wave. So just to be clear, 
Um, for those of you who don't know what I was talking about, there is this thing that we study in music history called the French Overture, which is a, a, fo a form that was used, um, you know, as, obviously as an introduction to a French tragic opera of the 17th century, but came became to be shorthand for a rhythmic gesture of an overdotted rhythm uh, on the downbeat. And that encore, encore is that overture rhythm. And so Bizet here is calling on his own understanding of music history to say this is tragedy and this is also now, now who needs a music degree to understand <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> but I'm also playing and like you're talking about playing dirty. I'm playing real dirty because that was Shirley. he's using the voice of my <laughs> idol against me. That was Shirley Barrett. Uh, in a recording a performance you can find from La Scala on YouTube, a complete production from 1984 conducted by Claudio Abado with the great Shirley Verrett, because, of course, she wants to sing that. Yeah, so it's a it's a point against Carmen that she didn't get to make the studio recording because of racism. Take <laughs> <Hey>, that. <laughs> 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 you got she got kicked off that Schulte recording and replaced with Tatiana Troianos, who no shade, much love to her, but Shirley Verrett's Shirley Verrett. It's true. Well, I think you have all the information you need, Ashley. <laughs> when you stop laughing, will you be able to reveal the final winner? George, you got the, any last comment on what you're, who you're back in here? He's me. Yeah, from, from our... Opening two of the final four. Any any final thoughts or comments? Who are you rooting for? Well, I, I just you know want to say thank you so much. You know we couldn't have done it without the fans. We are glittering and being gay right now, and we're so. <laughs> oh wait, sorry. Wait, what? Wait, wait. Kendi didn't win the thing. Oh, okay. Wes did anything from you. <laughs> I think I've made my feelings very clear. Thank you to Oliver. So you're, you're backing Don Giovanni because you think that Rosen Cavalier is closest to Don Giovanni, right? Uh, in some ways, yes, actually. They, they have a, a similar uh, balance of dramedy. You, you know and your I mean? forgiveness uh, and your enlightenment ideals. With a grain of salt. You know, one ends with someone getting dragged to hell and one ends with... Uh, um, a musical three-way, so both are good. Now, I would have said if you were, if we were going down to like a single blow, I would have put "ya ya" the last two words that the Marshallin sings uh, up against any two notes in, in, in any opera. But you didn't pull that that move out. You I, maybe you were saving it. I don't know. But you, know, you got to you didn't come <laughs> for the final round, which I didn't get to because of someone, <laughs> someone who I will not mention. I mean, it's it's fine, you know. If it was left up to me in purely personal taste, Boris Gudnov would be the winner right now. But I don't no. think that's going to happen. You're right. That's absolutely not what's going <laughs> Man, this is this is a close one. This is like the final thirty seconds where there's just two points, two points, two points back and forth. But if I'm gonna, ooh, it's like Sophie's Choice. Um to bring films into basketball. Stay with me. All right. Um, I am going to say that, well, both of you have brought very good points. I'm going to have to go with the opinion of critic Joseph Kerman, author of Opera as Drama, and say that the perfect opera is Don Giovanni. What? Yay. Oh! This is <laughs> <laughs> So close. It was so 
close. And now, before we do the trophy presentation, this is when we announce the MVP of the entire tournament. And I think, in what might come as a surprise to folks, the MVP is actually going to go to Candide because they fought really hard and no one expected them to be here. So props for Candide. Yeah, you know, round of applause. You know, everybody gets their their moment on the, the one shining moment montage at the end of the NCAAs. <laughs> and you always get a lot of footage of the winner. And I, I'm surprised. I'm genuinely surprised by the, the result tonight. Uh, but... There we are. It's been a weird year. What can I say? <laughs> it's actually it's it's kind of a funny uh, like microcosm of a microcosm of this was when I was doing the Italian bracket. I did not think that Don Giovanni was going to be the winner, but when I really had to sit there and lay out the pros and cons of each one, it just kept squeaking by with being a little bit better, put a little bit more complete, a little bit more well rounded because there's so much in it that there's going to be more of it than almost anything else, no matter what you're comparing it against. Matt, you literally just sounded like every NBA coach ever in a post-game interview, but you were talking yes. about opera. I love it. Can you imagine like the tag team matchups of Escamillo and Don Jose versus Leporello and Don Giovanni? And well, Don it... Giovanni would, would kick Leporello in the shins and run away. <laughs> and then you have... Zerlina, really Dona Ana, and Elvira against Frasquita, Mercedes, and Carmen. That's not even a fair fight. Like they would. I would give El. I mean, I would give Elvira like secret advantage in that fight. <laughs> She's scrappy. Listen, nobody's giving Dona Ana her due. Girl, be cray. Girl, be cray. She's avenging the death of, death of her father. She'll cut you. She'll cut you right. So we're gonna hear this last bit. I'm just gonna play it because I'm pissed. your fun finale which is the part of the opera nobody sticks around for but um <laughs> it, it, yes the the finale of don giovanni definitely has a bad rap because you're coming down from like the high points of all opera as you said yeah. but the way that mozart uses the orchestration there is really what i think is special about it those roaring string lines that kind of are the um the mirror image of what was going on during the damnation duet it it, it just brings this, it kind of ties it all together in a way that I can't explain any more than that. 
I'm going to play really dirty here. And uh, Carmen is going to have some parting words for all of you. In 30 seconds, you know who this woman is, and she tells you everything you need to know, and it's just a delight to hear that, and how many operas have such a great build-up to the entrance of a character, and who has one of the most famous arias in the entire canon, and has just this perfect 30-second recitative that is just, I don't know, it's sassy, it's French, it's, you know, it's smart, it's melodic, and it gives you really, the singer a really great chance to, to show her acting chops. I mean, what more can you ask for? Don, Don Giovanni better watch his back. She's coming at him with a knife. Maybe not today, but tomorrow. There's always next year. Yes. I want to be a mezzo so bad. <laughs> hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. First and foremost, in these surreal times, I hope that you and the people that you love are healthy and safe. Here at the OBS, we continue to do our show, and we're continuing to document all things opera-related in the time of corona, and we want to hear your voice. Are you an employee of the opera world whose work has been affected by COVID-19, a singer who has lost a job or gained a different job, a fan who's desperate to see something live in person and can't let us know how you're coping with your own shelter-in-place order. Send your message or your voice memo up to 60 seconds to operaboxscore at gmail.com and we might feature you on our show. We want to hear from you. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Headline from the New York Times, Metropolitan Opera Facing Sharp Losses, Furloughs Dozens. With the company's September opening in jeopardy, the Metropolitan Opera will put 41 staff members on indefinite furlough and cut 11 others to part-time hours. Meanwhile, the Met's chorus is taking matters into its own hands, launching a fundraising campaign which looks to raise $100,000 to help the company's AGMA members. Among the artists that the campaign will benefit will include dancers, stage managers, staff performers, full-time and extra choristers, stage directors, and soloists. Tragedy struck Amsterdam on March 8th, that's five days before the lockdown in that country. The Amsterdam Mixed Choir gave a performance of Bach's St. John Passion and four people associated with the chorus. One singer and three partners of chorus members died of coronavirus after the concert. 102 more fell sick, some seriously. The ensemble is an amateur choir of 130 members with the average age of the singers above 50 years. The Opera Nationale de Paris will lose up to 40 million euros as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. In an interview, General Director Stephanie Lissner 
mentioned the cumulative loss, noting that many plans for the 2020-21 season will, uh, could be disrupted heavily as a result. Uh, listener also, also claimed that state protocols for reinstating performances were not practical for audience members, artists, and employees. The Gramophone Classical Music Awards winners charity lockdown gala <sighs> to benefit artists affected by COVID-19 related cancellations premiered last night. The full broadcast, which featured performances by Lisa Davidson, Ian Bostridge, and friend of the show, Jakob Josef Orlinski, will be available on Gramophone's YouTube channel until May 17th. Coronavirus be damned, the BBC Music Magazine announced their 2020 awards. The Chandos label recording of Purcell's King Arthur, led by Paul McCreesh, won big, earning the top prize of Recording of the Year and the Opera Award. The 2018 Blindborn production of Vanessa won the DVD Award, and the 2020 BBC Music Magazine Personality of the Year goes to Jamie Barton. Opera Atelier gets in on the at-home game with virtual showcase events, uh, premiering on the company's website on Wednesday, May 20th. The online event, called Together Slash Apart, will include performances from Misha Brukers gosman Wallace Junta, friend of the show Douglas Williams, and other musicians and dancers of the pioneering Toronto-based Baroque opera troupe. An op-ed by Michael Fabiano calls for grants, elimination of self-employment tax, tax, and an opt-in coalition that would afford the self-employed essential protections and structure that would offer a pathway to pensions, emergency funds, and group health care for self-employed workers like opera singers. New England Conservatory's Jordan Hall has closed to outside presenters for the 2020-2021 season, leaving various artistic institutions out in the cold, including Boston Baroque and our friends at Boston Early Music Festival. In a week of awful news for singing artists that included editorials in The Nation and a contributor to Voice of OC, which we'll put on our website, the most devastating news was a report that has shaken the singing community where an expert panel laid out a sobering vision for the future of public singing in America. The stated goal of the panel was, quote, to bring scientists and medical professionals directly to our audience of vocalists, as those of us who run professional organizations do not have the direct knowledge ourselves of these complex issues. The experts concluded that there is no safe way for singers to rehearse together until there is a COVID-19 vaccine and a 95% effective treatment in place, estimated at 18 to 24 months from now. Read a summary and the conclusions of the discussion at middleclassartist.com. The cancellation list grows with Arena di Verona, Glimmerglass, Glyndebourne, and Santa Fe, all 86ing their upcoming summer festivals. Meanwhile, Opera Frankfurt forges ahead with their 2020-2021 season announcement with a very me-approved season set to begin in September. The new season includes Le Grand Macabre, Zemlinski's Der Traumgürge, Boris Gudinov, Dialogues of the Carmelites, Lady Macbeth, uh, Macbeth of Metensk, and E. Puritani, starring a new friend of the show, Brenda Ray. All amazing things, and I wish I could be there. Exit stage right, Austrian chorus director Norbert Balach died last week at the age of 92. Balach was a lifelong singer and was known for his roles as chorus director of the Vienna State Opera from 1968 to 1982 and held the same position at the Bayreuth Festival from 1972 to 1999. 
Italian conductor Andrea Cerasso has also died at the age of 39. Since 2013, Cerasso had been the main conductor for the Imago Sonora Ensemble at the Accademia Philharmonica Romana, a contemporary music ensemble. Thomas Catron III, a founding director of Santa Fe Opera, died earlier this month at the age of 98. Catron was in introduced to opera in Italy, where he was stationed during World War II before serving as the president of the board and establishing the Santa Fe Opera Foundation in 1976. Croatian conductor Baldo Podic has died of COVID-19 at the age of 77. He is known for his work at Basel City Theater in Switzerland, specializing in the operas of Donizetti, Verdi, Bellini, and Puccini. And on this day of recording, that's May 11th, 1738, it was the premiere of Johann Adolf Adolf's Hasse's Alfonso in Dresden, the 1837 premiere of Saverio, uh, Saviero's Mercadante's Il Giuramento at La Scala, 1884, it was the birth of Romanian soprano Alma Gluck in Bucharest, 1895, birth of American composer William Grant Still in Woodville, uh, Mississippi. 1902, it was the birth of Brazilian soprano Bidu Sayao, a.k.a. Baldiuna de Oliveira, near Rio de Janeiro. 1917, it was the premiere of a double bill, Ferruccio Busoni's operas Arlecchino and Turandot at the Stadttheater in Zurich, two favorites of mine. 1949, birth of American soprano Ruth Welting in Memphis, and that... <sighs> was your two-minute drill. Always advisable was, to sing the high F sharp at the end. Of that. It was absolutely <laughs> absurd, and I loved it. There are not enough recordings of Ruth Welting out there. There, there she's on a couple that that did get made, but uh, a really fantastic American soprano with a high voice that extended for days, literally but days. It's also one of those things like <laughs> that you have to just acknowledge that it takes balls to do something like that. And you could, I mean, for those of us who are singers, we heard at the very beginning of the attack of that note, it's like, oh, it's not centered. And she just hung on and hung on. It's like, the vibrato's coming. I promise I've got it in there somewhere. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, congratulations, Ruth Welting, for doing that. I wonder how she convinced the conductor to let her do that. I can't imagine there are many who <laughs> would make that allowance today. <laughs> This is what I know, is that no conductor would just allow her to go and do that if she hadn't done it on repeat for them a number of times. So even if it started a little tight, even if it didn't quite get there right in the beginning, you know she did it a thousand times in rehearsal, which means she has more street cred than all of us on this podcast put together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we should. That's why we need to change the uh, name of uh, the show, too. People, uh, people have less street cred than you, uh, the podcast. Uh, I wanted to... Uh, <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, in like what seems like the only bit of maybe good news or at least uh, neutral news uh, this week. The Opera Frankfurt season is like literally the best thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> I life. I knew when I saw that. <laughs> I mean it. I mean it doesn't. It is. It doesn't look good for it getting to happen as scheduled. 
but in my in my head it's 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 one of those seasons that's almost too perfect to exist so there's like a bit of like a poetic sort of a uh, timing to it, uh, but the Zimlinski. Oh, oh, I love that. Anyway, I do feel Does like you mentioned every. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have mentioned almost all of these. Does this mean that your letter writing campaign has like finally paid off? Like finally, after- uh, I mean, uh, it's all the haunting, uh, the the halting German phrases I keep sending to Frankfurt. Please do Traumgürge. So <laughs> this is the episode where you're coming out as an Ipuritani stan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Brenda Ray stan. I'm a Fair Brenda enough. Ray Funny thing is that... Oh, we all are now, yeah. This is the year that it seems like all the opera companies got their act together and were like programming, you know, Tesori's Blue and we had the Nissi Mazzoli work and all these things in Chicago we were looking forward to. And it's like, no. Nope. rake's progress. <laughs> this is the year oh. that there'll be no opera. <laughs> Yeah, that's how it goes sometime, isn't it? Or ensemble singing of any kind, for that matter, huh, Oliver? So that uh, panel discussion and the um, sort of social media that came out after that, there hasn't really been like a full write-up of that whole expert panel discussion, but there will be at some point. But we all heard the what the discussion led to, and I think some people even were listening to it live. Uh, it was co-hosted mm-hmm. by Chorus America. And uh, yeah, I mean, like, Everybody that I know was just gutted that day. And there was no, I mean, there was no bright spot on that day. Everybody just like accepting this is an awful, awful day. Well, it's, I mean, I will say that uh, I think Zach's write-up on middle-class artists was a really great thing that came out pretty quickly afterward to give you just a way to wrap your brain around it. Whether you weren't able to to sit in and watch the panel or if you just kind of wanted like a quick nutshell of what had happened. Um, but yeah, the, the information was, was really sobering, especially for those of us that, that generate income from sitting, you know, closer than six feet apart from people and making sound at the same time, mostly in harmony if we're doing it right. Um, so it was, it was a, it was a really sobering moment but it's just you know when you think about just the straight up you know physics and geometry not to mention the biology of it you know whether you're an audience member or whether you're a musician the idea that you know let's let's say let's take a let's take our you know Gans Hall in Chicago for example that houses two it seats 200 people so what's 200 divided by six that would be oh god couldn't you have done 33 this 33 and a third. So you could put 33 and a third people, roughly, in the audience. Those ticket sales are not going to be sustainable for that small of a house, even if you multiply it to some of the bigger houses that are in, in Chicago, whether it's Orchestra Hall or, or Lyric Space. You know, having having people sit six far apart, it's just the income model is just not sustainable. Let and, alone and six feet and six feet isn't significant isn't sufficient for singing. With just with the amount of wind force that's required, yeah, it, it throws all yeah. those calculations off. That back of the envelope math is just impossible. Yeah. The one sort of um, hopeful point for me, a uh, uh, takeaway about it, is that there um, is that this discussion was actually had. You know what I mean? Because uh, yeah. a lot of the stuff I've been seeing about this has been very much uh, attached to communities in general and there's the stuff that the arts organizations are learning just kind of gets trickled down to them and they're sort of hypothesizing well what does that mean for us so having a discussion about this and and laying out what would be needed for a full reopening 
is, I think, you know, while not necessarily the answers we want, a good step towards, okay, this is what we want to be working for. This is what we want to look out for. Yeah. When there's a vaccine, when there's, um, you know, a treatment. Uh, exactly. Something, something that made it yeah. less, something that mitigated the risk. It's like, right, exactly. Like, I, I could very well see a situation where, you know, oh, there's a partially effective vaccine out, and you could have seen, like, opera companies going back and forth, like, do we open, do we not, so is that enough, you know? So having this, you know, even though the time projections are not very handy in that regard, it could very well be less than that in terms of time. But even having that on paper as a goal, I think, is a step that needed to be taken, and it's good that it was taken. It's like Susie, I am really gonna. It's like Susie Orman came in and said, "You have all this debt. You have to actually open your bills to see what you owe before you can even start right. paying off this debt." Um, as someone who has a lot of credit card debt, <laughs> I opened my bills, <laughs> but but yeah, it's just like the this. It's a long, long road, but you first have to acknowledge that it's a long road and see what steps will have to be taken. You know. And, and when you're looking at it from from an organizational point of view, a lot of the writing about it has been comparing it to 12 years ago with the financial crisis. But I don't really think that's a fair comparison just because really. this is so much more universal and it is so much and it's uh, an external factor that really wasn't there when you look at 2007, 8, 9. Um, you're not worried about cash flow necessarily. The cash flow is coming as a, the cash flow problems are a, if you'll pardon the pun, symptom here, not mm. a cause. Uh, right. the, the virus is the cause. And so I don't really think that the finances are necessarily going to work in the same way as 2008, where people were really trying to to deal with the liquidity issues of like having enough cash on hand to pay bills. Like if the entire world has to continue to go on some measure of pause for the next three years, you're not going to have the same kind of competing forces for your attention uh, and and for your entertainment that, that the arts are traditionally up against. You know what I mean? Like, you're not competing against movies anymore because you can't make movies either. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I do think that there's some potential here for some genuine creativity. I mean, we're already seeing it with, like, the online seasons and uh um and things like that uh there's uh but th this is going to have to be something that um opera companies i think are hearing this news are going to start really thinking about having to start thinking about the long term uh how they how they survive how they move forward if they move forward with anything or if they just like go into a cocoon for a year you know um and i don't know how financially possible that is but um I also really appreciated uh, Michael Fabiano's little editorial uh, about uh, also looking in. I don't know if his, I don't know if the timing works. I don't know if it was a um, a reaction to this news or not, but certainly it felt like it. Um, just having something in place for self-employed singers um, who might potentially be affected a great deal longer than the rest of the world at large or the rest of the economy at large uh, is something that has to be fought for. And I yeah. would certainly call on opera companies who right now might still have a little bit of change in their pockets to become advocates for that sort of thing with their local governments. And not just the opera companies, what I really want to see, who I really want to see stepping up to take more ownership of the problems here and more, uh, you know, more driving for the solutions is the unions. 
that absolutely so many, that are like that that's why we join unions as musicians is to get some sort of overarching protection from the forces that would buffet just one solo individual when you're talking about it versus a multi-billion dollar industry like there's frankly no excuse for a soloist to have to go out and start another foundation that will do what the agma is supposed to be doing for everyone right agreed i um as sobering as that uh, discussion was, and, and frankly, how it was kind of disappointing, there were two things that actually were were comforting for me on kind of an overall umbrella level. You know, the first was the the pulling in of, of scientists and expert witnesses. Because like you said, we have these people that are leading these organizations. They know how they can respond to certain things, but what they don't and, and shouldn't have to have the, you know, the expert witness, you know, arena of our, is the science behind this. So the bringing together of those things, the intersectionality of having this conversation was comforting to me because mm. it's, it's nice to see people in positions of power trusting scientists and leaning on them for their expert opinions. Oh, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm just saying it's nice to have. Uh, and, and the other point that was comforting for me about this was that despite how far away 18 to 24 months feels, I think one of the things that's been so, at least for me, and I know I'm not alone in this, one of the things that's been so confusing, frustrating, upsetting is musicians are always planning ahead. They're looking to the future. We live on like, okay, the next gig, what is the next thing I'm going to do? You know, we, we are always living in anticipation of what that next piece of work is going to be. And so much about what this pandemic has done has kind of erased timelines. It has removed our ability to make plans for anything in the future, whether it's two weeks away, one month away, six months away. So to know that there is at least a date, however abstract, in the future that we can at least look towards and say, okay, we don't have to panic and think it's around the corner and be hoping and waiting for it. It may be this far away, but given giving people that certainty to look forward to was comforting for me on some level. And because of the fact that it's such a protracted recovery period, I think that the like the organizations are going to have to respond differently than when they were than how they were back when we thought this was going to be like maybe eight weeks, maybe three months. You know, surely by the end of the year, everything will be back to normal. And as it increasingly looks like we won't be, uh, I do feel like there might be some people who who in the short term get screwed less than they were going to. If it was just like, nope, sorry, your gig's canceled. We got someone else coming into that space. You're done. Bye. You know, yeah. if, if you can't plan ahead, things that have been planned and announced, I actually think stand a greater chance of surviving when we are able to come back online in whatever fashion that is. And all of this is being discussed as we're getting this story from Amsterdam, which is devastating to think of people who like gave their all for one of the hardest things to sing, this St. John Passion. And, um, you know, they're a volunteer choir. And what is it? Like four people died already from that and 103 people got sick from it. So we have to take this seriously. It's not it's not a um, conspiracy theory. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's 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 one of those things that really uh, hurts in a very sort of direct way, but it's something that does need to be pointed out in such a climate of conspiracy theories and people pushing back to reopen before we're ready and and yeah. things like that. And this is this is something that I think supporters of the arts know better than most how 
it might be 18 to 20, 24 months, but we need to make make sure that everyone is safe before we can come back uh, uh, ready to go. Before we go um, to a good callback, call, it's been a long episode, guys. Uh, just want to shout out to Opera Atelier. Uh, and I have to say that the artistic directors of Opera Atelier, um, Marshall Pinkowski and Jeanette Lajeunesse Zing, they have an aesthetic. And I would <laughs> expect them to be very, very prepared for what this thing is going to look like. Marshall Pankowski particularly is sort of a control freak in the best way. And um, yeah, he has his hand on every aspect of that company. And so I think this might be one of the more beautiful ones. Uh, and, uh, you know, the virtual experience might be as, as close to what, you know, he wishes as any other thing that we see. Maybe, I don't know, we know that the Teatro Maggio from uh, Florence last week was sort of a mess and the Met was sort of successful. I feel like this is going to be more along the line of what the Met put together. And plus, we know we love Doug Williams, who was our interview guest like two years ago at this point, three years ago. It was a while ago, but one of my favorite interviews. So check that out. I mean, out. Time, has lost, time has lost all meaning. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll send it back to Norm and we'll come back for a good call, bad call. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. So my good call is one of my all-time favorite artists has been putting out a little mini web series and they come very unpredictably, but it's Cecilia Bartoli sitting at her home with her piano, just oh. giving us little two-minute videos of her singing and giving us beautiful greetings in her heavily accent accented English. Here's the one that she did for Mother's Day. Ciao, auguri a tutte le mamme del mondo. Happy Mother's Day. Mamma, son tanto felice perché ritorna te. La mia canzone felice è il più bel giorno per They're so sweet. And she did Aprile. Uh, I think that was her first one. And uh, just joyful and just so sweet and sincere. So that's my good call. Check them out. My Ashley. call isn't good or bad. It's a call for collaborators. Um, I don't know what you guys have been watching in terms of quarantine, but I have really gotten into um, 90 Days Fiance colon before the 90 days. So what this is... That's just Fiance. <laughs> Yes, so what this is is a call for collaborators. I want to take some of these storylines and turn them into an opera. Ed and Rosemary are rife, and I mean rife, for some sort of an opera. Like, it can even be a one act. We can market it to colleges. It'll be great. Ed can be a held in tenor. Rosemary can be a contralto because her voice is just as low as his, but I need this to happen, so somebody inbox us so that we can get this started. Two voice types that are perfect for conservatory students. Eldon Tenor and Contralto. I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. What's going on? I will fill you in. It's a reality show uh, where basically people on people in different countries have fallen in love over the internet. And there are a number of shows in this franchise, but Before the 90 Days is my favorite because it's usually the first time they meet in a country and figure out if they actually love each other or if it was just the Instagram talking. Uh, and some of the storylines are absolutely magically delivered. Matt. My good call for this week is that the Mets uh, nightly live stream on Wednesday, May 13th mm. is going to be one of the first 
recordings that I ever watched when I was getting into opera back in high school. The Ariadna Auf Naxos from the 80s with Jesse Norman and Kathleen Battle that uh, Oliver and I both gushed about for about 25 minutes when we were doing the Jesse Norman tribute episode. So you should definitely check that out if you have not seen it already or even if you have. Weston. If you are as big a fan of Matt Cummings content as I am, and for some reason these like seven hour epic episodes have not slaked your thirst yet, you need to go to Great Performances on May 15th, 9 p.m. Eastern on PBS. Uh, they're going to present Leonard Bernstein's Mass from the 2019 Ravinia Festival. Uh, and uh, Matt Cummings is in there. So tweet at us when you see him and take a screenshot. It's going to be like a Where's Waldo of, of Matt Cummings. And I'm so excited to watch it. Uh, it's going to be delighted. Uh, um, Marn Alslop is conducting. Uh, Baritone Paulo Sot is in there. And, of course, Matt Cummings is the, the main part of, uh, of the entire production, I'm sure. I, I was in the <laughs> choir, but the whole cast of singers that called the street chorus in that show, they were all so good. Yeah, I really never got tired of watching of the them show. Karim Suleiman is on there. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he, yeah, he's great. Um, I think George might have a good call, but let's see if he enters this to give it to us. George. All right, team. Thanks for passing the pigskin back to me in the Ravenswood studio. Two good calls. Opera Awards uh, slated to be in London May 4 last week. Those have been moved to September 21st. So you still have a chance to vote for best upper chorus and get this upper box score now ranked the 176th most listened to podcast in South Africa appreciate the love there that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera our announcer is Norm Waddell at voxershorts.com V-O-X-E-R S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show available wherever you get your pods and let a friend know about it. Creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guest, Russell Thomas, for Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hargrave. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera at the top of your lungs. We're back with an all-new podcast next Tuesday, May 19, when we're joined by Michael Mays from the Dallas Opera Network. Plus, more opera news, more hot takes, more spittle. Join us.